Praise the Lord, everyone. It's great to be in the house of the Lord. You may be seated. God bless you all. Thank you for coming out in this Easter service. I know that Easter is a special day, and uh, a lot of people make an extra effort to be here on Sunday. We're grateful for that. We want to invite you to keep coming back and hearing the word of the Lord and, and uh, building your faith. If you don't have a, a, a place, a home of fellowship, we invite you to come and to join us. We're just grateful to the Lord for his mercies this morning. Amen. Praise the Lord, everyone. <laughs> it's good to be here. Um, I just want to thank the Lord for being back at Hosanna. I was out for two Sundays. Well, one Sunday, actually, for 10 days in Africa. We're out there um, with our church members out there in Africa, and it was a great time. Totally different culture, different ways of doing things, but we have a beautiful, beautiful group of brothers and sisters out there that are just uh, preaching the gospel, committed to Jesus Christ and to spreading the gospel to as many people as they can, and we just had a great time over there. It's just a wonderful time, so thank you for your prayers and for your support. Today we're celebrating the, the uh, resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we're also celebrating 12 baptisms in our church this Sunday. Amen. Um, in, in our English service, we're going to have six baptisms and six more in our Spanish service. So we want to congratulate Brother Gustavo and Ismael Reyes. Amen. God bless them. They're going to be baptized today. In Jesus' name. We're also grateful for Gio Navarro and Andrew Barrera. They're going to be baptized in Jesus' name. Natalie Sanchez and Sister Lauren Flores that are going to be baptized in Jesus' name. <laughs> we get excited about baptisms because the Bible says that whenever a sinner gives their life to Jesus Christ, whenever they repent, is what the Bible says, that there's rejoicing in heaven. So we join ourselves to that joy, I'm sure, that's being experienced in heaven right now as uh, six of our brothers in our, in our English uh, service are are committing their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no better thing that a person can do. We're calling our service today Death to Life. Everyone say Death to Life. And, um, and uh, that's literally what's happening this morning is that six of our, of our church members are going to be moving from death to life. When we talk about death to life, we're talking about spiritually. The fact that when someone commits their life to Jesus Christ, there is something that happens spiritually in the heart of that individual in their position before God. And death is anything apart from God. And life is everything else that's connected to God. In fact, we believe very deeply that, that every good thing, this is what the scripture says, every good thing comes from God. So, so when we, when we um, uh, have, for example, someone that is coming into a commitment with Jesus Christ or giving their lives over to him, essentially what's happening spiritually for them is they're moving from a place absent God, a place where, 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 where they have not yet committed and walked with God. It's a place that metaphorically or symbolically is called death into life. Life because at thy right hand, the Bible says about God, are pleasures forevermore. And every good gift that we have in our lives comes from the Lord. And so we thank God for the, the decisions that have been made today. Now, today we're going to have six baptisms, as I said, in our English service towards the end of our service. And I know that's why some of you particularly are here this morning. 
you've come to, to witness by invitation of your friends or family members the baptisms that we're going to have. And I want to explain to you a little bit of the symbolism of the baptism. When we baptize, we submerge people in water. So let me explain a little bit. Three things that you need to know about baptisms today. Water, here's the baptistry, we're going to baptize them in water, is a symbol of the grave, dirt, the ground, where people that are dead are buried. We immerse people in the water. And by immersion, what we're doing is we're representing burial. A person is buried in the grave or, or in the ground, and in this case, symbolically immersed in water. And then when they're withdrawn from the water, it represents new life, a new life that you now have with Jesus Christ. In baptism, the Bible teaches that there's the forgiveness of sins. So for everyone that's going to be baptized today, essentially what's going to happen is that they're going to receive the forgiveness because they have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're in that precise moment going to receive the forgiveness of their sins. Peter said it this way in Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we are baptizing people that are confessing Christ as Savior for the remission of their sins. And so when you see people baptized today, they come into the water type of the grave. They go under the water type of burial. They come up out of the water type of newness of life. And so there's a lot of symbolism there. We just wanted you to kind of get your head around that. When you see the baptism, see what we're going to do today just so that you kind of understand. There is, um, today is Resurrection Sunday, obviously. And, and there's no more important doctrine than the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In all of the scriptures, of all of the Christian teachings, of all of the Christian doctrines, there's no doctrine that's more important than this doctrine. Essentially, all of Christianity falls, rises or falls, stands or falls on this one doctrine. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to um, explain from the scriptures and from history and from some cases that have happened in, um, in, in, in the past about why this is true. This doctrine is so very important to the church. And so I'm going to ask you to stand with me just to honor the reading of the Word of God one last time before you, we all sit or you all sit to listen to the reading of the Scriptures and turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6 verses 9 through 11. And we're going we're to read this portion of the Scriptures in the name of the Lord. And again, we're so glad to have all of our visiting friends and our brothers here this, uh, this morning. Here's what the scripture says in Romans chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Now, verse 11. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, from death to life. Father, we thank you for the reading of the word of God this morning, and we pray that as we gather to hear the word, as we have gathered to hear the word, that you would minister to our hearts. Let us receive the word with gladness. Let us receive the word with faith. Let our hearts be built up as we hear the word of God. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. And everyone says amen. You may be seated. As I said just a few moments ago, there is no more important doctrine in the Christian faith than the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now the resurrection of Christ is, cent is central to our faith because it is the one sign. There's just one. No other signs are necessary. There is just one sign that proves that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that everything that he said about himself and that everything the scriptures say about him are absolutely true. Just one sign. And that one sign is the sign of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, this one sign is going to create a contrast between Jesus Christ and every other person that calls himself a savior or every other person that establishes a new religion or any other person that establishes a, a way to God and says, follow me, I know the way to God. The resurrection is going to establish once and for all which of all of the religions is the true religion. The reason for that again is because this one sign, not miracles, not healings, not people getting raised from the dead, not um, fire coming down from heaven, not all the other signs and miracles that have been shown throughout time or in the prophets or even in the ministry of Jesus Christ, not all those spectacular supernatural things. Those are not the sign. They are signs, signs that men of God in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament and the apostles in the New Testament and others of other religions and of other faiths and even within some areas of occultism, miracles and signs accompanying those supernatural beliefs or faith that they have in their in their religion or in their in their gods we do not um, uh, debate this morning whether other religions or other um, uh, faiths are able to produce miracles we're not going to deny that because we believe that there is a supernatural world and we believe that as God has absolute power and authority all power and authority there are other gods other gods with a small g that also have power and authority to work in what in our realm or in our space subject to time and all that that can work what it, what for us would be miracles they can work the supernatural and so we're not impressed as far as miracles and wonders and signs calling down fire from heaven and all that that doesn't certify anyone as being in the true religion and that's really important because throughout all of history, there have been men that have done lying miracles. And in the future history, when the Antichrist comes to, to deceive the multitudes, the masses of people that are on the world, he is going to come and accompanying him are going to be great signs and great wonders and great miracles that are going to be done. And so miracles don't necessarily impress us. They don't tell us that something is true or that something is not true. The only thing that miracles tell us is that there is a supernatural realm that from time to time intervenes in the matters of mankind for good or for bad, to deceive or to enlighten. There is a supernatural world. But out of all of these signs and all of these miracles and everything else that we know are possible in the world today and that are happening in our world today, there is one sign that stands outside of all of these other signs and miracles. And this is the one sign that Jesus said is going to certify that I am who I say that I am. That is the Savior of the world, 
the King of Kings, the one that, the only one that can really open and give us access to God. This one sign, again, was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It was not just a temporary defeat of the dead, like Jesus did when he raised Lazarus from the dead. It was a total and absolute victory over death and a total defeat of the devil and death in that when Jesus defeated death, death was absolutely destroyed from that time on. No more would death have absolute authority over everyone in the world. In fact, there were going to be those in the world that were going to overcome death, that were going to be partakers of the victory that Jesus gave us when he conquered death and when he conquered sin. So Jesus puts everything on the resurrection of the dead. He says, if this one thing is not true of me, then I am just in the line of all of the other Christs. I am in the line of all those that have said, follow me, I'll show you the way to God, and they can't do it. I am just another of those many individuals and persons that have arisen in history and have claimed to show people how to be in right relationship with God and are not able to do it. I'll be just like any one of the other messiahs. But if I can raise myself from the dead, if after three days being in the tomb I am raised up again, then that will be the one sign that I am true and that what I say is the absolute truth. And so today what we're doing is we're celebrating what we know happened more than 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. That Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, conquered death, conquered sin when he rose from the dead. And he himself took the greatest victory and gave us the greatest sign that the faith, the Christian faith, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the right faith. So the resurrection becomes foundational to our most basic beliefs. If there is no resurrection, Paul said, then we're not preaching the truth. We may as well all go home. There is no forgiveness of sins. There is no future hope for heaven and for joy. All of those things that we claim are all tied to our faith that is tied to the resurrection. The resurrection is so crucial to our faith that Paul the Apostle said this in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 14. Here's what he said about the resurrection. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then your faith is also vain. Now that's a gargantuan statement. And what it means is this. If you can disprove just one thing, don't worry about the miracles, don't worry about the prophets, don't worry about everything that Jesus said. Don't worry about whether the miracles really happened or not. If you can disprove if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true, that's all you have to disprove. That all, that's all that doesn't have to be true. And if you can destroy the resurrection, then all of Christendom is absolutely destroyed. That's a big statement. Paul thought, not only thought, but he was absolutely convinced that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the tomb was absolute truth. Now let me say this, that if that is true, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then he is who he said he was, which is God manifested in the flesh. Then it puts us in a 
in an interesting position. If he really is the God that created all of us, and then when we fell into sin and erred in our ways and disobeyed and rebelled against God, he loved us so much that he, he that God that created us, came into the world to die for us, it really commits us, doesn't it? It really puts us in a situation where if that's true, then we can't just walk away from that truth. And if we walk away from that truth, what we have essentially done is created the biggest sin that mankind can commit. Knowing that God came to the world to die for us, our very creator. And in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord, he suffered and he died on Calvary's cross. And then he rose up from the dead to prove to us, to give us evidence that he was who he said he was. Man, you can't just walk away from that without being guiltless before God. And so Paul is absolutely convinced when he writes the Corinthians about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me say a couple of things about the resurrection. Uh, the first of which is going to be this. The resurrection of Christ is inseparable from the good news of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you'll look at the scriptures there for me, maybe open your Bible if you brought it with you. It says this, the first couple of verses. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received and wherein ye stand, by which also you were saved. That you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. Now here's the message he gave them. Verse 3. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Now... It's interesting because this portion of scripture, verses number 3 and verse number 4, give us the earliest known written creed of Christianity. The first written doctrinal statement about the Christian faith and the gospel. And what it is telling us essentially is this. This is what we believe as believers. This is what changes the life of a person when they're able to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that... Paul says is this, that Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. That's our message. It's our message this morning. It's been our message for 2,000 years and it will be our message until Jesus Christ comes for the church. We serve a risen Christ. A Christ that gave his life for the entire world. Now, the kind of faith that God is asking us to have is faith. It can't be rationally explained completely. There comes a point in everything that has to do with faith where we have to ask ourselves, but how is that possible? And in a finite world that is subject to universal laws, we all have to get to a point where we say, I just don't understand. I don't know how that could happen. For example, how can Jesus Christ raise himself from the dead once he has passed from this life? Give me the details of that within the confines of our universal laws. 
And the answer to that is, you cannot. There comes a moment because we believe in the Lord, because we have faith in Him, where you're not going to be able to take out scientific formulas, and you're not going to be able to put these things in a, a Bunsen burner or in a test tube, and then come out with the right formula for a resurrection. A resurrection at the end of the day is a resurrection. It's supernatural in nature. God did it. He is the explanation. He is the one that moved on that early Sunday morning to raise up Jesus from the dead. But that does not mean that the Christian faith is without logic and that the Christian faith is without explanation. In fact, God does not ask us to believe a blind kind of a faith. And by blind faith, I mean this. I mean a faith that is unquestioning. You cannot question the belief in something. A blind faith is something that you believe even though it's unreasonable and it's wrong. Even though there are evidence against what it is that you say that you believe. Now, believers, and I'll say this with all respect, but it's the truth, so I'll say it anyway. The believers in every religion that there is in the world have to at some point close their eyes to the false and to the errant beliefs and to the errant practices of their faith and of their religious leaders. When these errors are acknowledged by them, they mythologize the, the errors or their stories or their, or their religious texts so that they can emphasize the truth that, or the principles that there are in their errant texts. Their religions becomes myth, myths with meaning. But not so with the Christian faith. God is not asking us when we go to the empty tomb and we study what the scriptures have to say about them, that we close our eyes, that we just blindly believe because Jesus said or because the apostles said. No, no. What he asks us to do is to open our eyes, is to consider the facts, is to look at the history is to examine the transformation in the lives of those individuals that were witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christianity says this, don't close your eyes, open your eyes. Don't shut down your mind and your reasoning. Open your reasoning and open your mind so that you can understand the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate what I mean when I say that... that um, Blind faith has to close its eyes to the faults and to the errors and to the mistaken beliefs and to the mistaken practices of their religious leaders. Now, I'm not saying that Christianity is a perfect religion. We all know that it is not. And I am not saying that preachers in Christendom have been perfect. There has not been one of them save Jesus Christ. I am not saying that there is a religious denomination that is that religious denomination that has everything absolutely right and that does not make mistakes. I'm not making any of those claims. What I am doing is this. I am comparing Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior of the Christian, to every other religious leader that has established their faith and that has grown their faith to embrace hundreds of thousands and millions of individuals. Let me illustrate. The re with the religion of Islam. And I'll say it with all respect, not giving anything other than what is true fact. Muhammad was born in the year 570 AD in Mecca. 
And as a young man, he used to seclude himself from time to time in a cave for extended periods of time. And on one of those occasions, when he was 40 years old, Muhammad claimed that he had an appearance of an angel, Gabriel, that began to chide him to, to read and to listen. Three and then four times he commanded him to read and to listen. And the prophet was so, or this man Muhammad was so troubled by this, he went home and he told his wife and, and his wife convinced him, what's happened here is that you're a prophet and that God has called you. And uh, this has been an encounter that you've had with an angel, Gabriel. And so the prophet Muhammad at the age of 40 began a religion that was generally a religion of peace. And he began to preach first of all in secret and then he began to preach publicly. And then he began to gather around him men that were, that were committed to the faith, that were promised um, uh, pleasures, um, uh, uh, worldly pleasures if you will, if they were ever to give their lives up or when they died as faithful Muslims. That was the story of this man, Muhammad, that grew up to be a prophet. Now, no mention in the book of Islam that 1,500 years before Muhammad, Paul, the apostle, had written to the Galatians and said this, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which is preached, even unto you, let him be accursed. Blind faith. The kind of faith that says, ignore what Paul says, ignore what the scripture says, ignore what your religious leaders have done and how they have lived their lives. Your religious leader has lived and how he has lived his life. Here's some other truths that are not commonly known about the prophet Muhammad after he became a prophet. He was a slave owner. Number two, he uttered the death during his campaigns of war of six to seven hundred men by ordering their beheading. After a siege that had lasted several weeks, he said that Allah approved of men having sexual relations with their, with their slaves or with their captive women that they had taken in war. He married Aisha at the age of six years old. And um, all of these things that happened in the life of the prophet Isaiah, just close your eyes to those realities. And I'm not saying that within, again, Christendom and Islam and any other religion that the men that inhabit and that believe those faiths are perfect men. There is not one of them. But what I am saying is this. We today are not worshiping the preachers of Christendom. We are not honoring the, the bishops or, the, or the, the great men of the Christian faith. There is only one that we follow. His name is Jesus Christ. There is only one that must be perfect, that must live a righteous life, that must live a holy and a perfect life, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as is the case with all men, Muhammad died in the year 632 before Christ. The question, why did Muhammad die? He died because he was a sinner, like all men are sinners, and he was a false prophet as every false prophet after Christ has arisen that has not preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans, Paul said, for the wages of sin is death. The payment that every sinner has to make is death. And so Muhammad, 
like all of the other religious leaders that have established a faith in the world have died. This is true of every faith save one. All religious leaders have died save one. His name is Jesus Christ. Today we're gathered together not to celebrate a religious leader. Today we're gathered together not to celebrate a man and then close our eyes to his sin, to his weakness, to his incapacity or inability. No. Today we gather together to celebrate a perfect man, a sinless lamb, a man that lived a life that was without any error or without any failure. He was the son of God. He was literally God, we believe, manifested in the flesh, the sinless son of God. This is our faith. And so what I'm doing today and what I invite all of us to do is this. I invite you to examine the evidence and think about our faith that is a historical faith. It's not founded on myth. It's not founded on tales that have been told of men. The Christian faith is a historical faith, which means this. You can examine its details. You can examine its history. And above all, you can examine the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, through Paul, here's an interesting thing. Christ invites us to examine the resurrection and to see if the resurrection is true. In fact, Paul is so certain of the resurrection that he said this, if it's historicity, if the truth of the resurrection again can be disproved, then our faith is in vain and the gospel becomes nothing more than religious chatter then what I am doing this morning is doing nothing more than just giving you a couple of lines from our religious book. But let me tell you something today, my friends. Jesus again and God and Paul and the writers of the New Testament invite us to examine this holy book and to see if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not, in fact, a true historical event. It is. Paul invites every skeptic to examine the evidence. And here's what we believe as Christians. Number one, we believe that God himself manifested himself in the person of Jesus Christ. If you were to ask a Christian who is Jesus, here's our answer. He is very God himself, clothed in human flesh, living amongst men. Here's what Paul said, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifested in the flesh. The second thing that we believe is this, that Jesus lived a perfect life. That there was no sin to him at all. That when he lived, although this is not a very popular teaching, and, not, and becoming less and less embraced by many people in our Western culture and society, people think nowadays that Jesus sinned a little bit, or that Jesus was not perfect, but that is not the teaching of Scripture, and the resurrection explains why. Here's what the Bible says. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he, Jesus, was manifested to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. In other words, 
the reason that Jesus is going to be able to rise from the dead is because sin has no authority over him. Sin has no power to hold him down. You know what the one universal evidence that everyone is a sinner is? That we die. I don't care how holy the individual might seem. I don't care how good they might be. I don't care how righteous a life they live. Somewhere along their life, they committed sin. And that sin condemns us to be separated from the presence of God. But there was one man that never sinned. There was one man that lived in this world and lived a perfect life. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we praise him this morning. Jesus rose from the dead because sin was not in him. And because he had not sinned, then death had no authority over his life. To the second, uh, to the Corinthians, Paul wrote in Corinthians 2, 5, 1, uh, 2, 5, 21, he said this, for he hath made him to be sin for us. Jesus was made sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Now that's a great text. I want us to think about that text for a little while. That Jesus Christ who knew no sin, who was a sinless lamb, who was a person that had never any fault was found in him. God made him sin. In other words, you know how Jesus became a sinner? He became a sinner because all of our sins, all of our faults, all of our culpability was laid on him. Did Jesus die a sinner? Yes, he died a sinner, but not with his own sin. He died a sinner because all of our sins were laid upon him. He lived a perfect life. And at the end of that perfect life, God laid his sins, or the sins of the world rather, upon him. So I'll say it again. Because he lived a perfect life, death had no power and no authority over him. The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin, said Paul to the Corinthians, is the law. He died only because he was willing to pay the price for our sin. When I ask individuals from time to time, okay, so what's the biggest sin a person can commit, right? As you know, people think, they think, oh, well, maybe adultery, right? That's a pretty big one. What's the biggest sin a person can commit? Well, you know, murder, that's like huge. You're taking the life of another innocent and uh, that's a gargantuan sin, and it is very big. What is, you, you can name a couple of them, right? What are the biggest sins that an individual can commit? I want you to think about this sin. The sin where Jesus, where God himself sends his son to the world. And that son of God lives a perfect life. And then at the end of that life, he is crucified. And then after he is crucified, he raises from the dead. And then one day, someone has, in God's grace, the mercy to talk to you about that message. And here's how they tell it to you. Do you know that Jesus died for your sins? And do you know that he paid the price so that you can, don't have to suffer the condemnation of death, spiritual death, and separation from God? To hear that message... 
that the very God of glory would come and love us so much that he would send his son to die for us. And then we turn away from that message. Can there be a bigger sin than that? To understand that God loved you so much that he died for you and still you say, yeah, I got it. You know what? I got things to do and I got people to meet and I got my life to live and I got things to experience and I got pleasures to enjoy. Then you turn your back on that message and you walk away to live your life the way that God, that, that you want to live your life. What is the biggest sin in the world? How could we compare murder or how could we compare adultery or fornication or, or one of the big sins to that sin? God himself, in the person of Jesus, died so that we might have life. But I don't care. It's gargantuan. After having paid the price for our sins, and because he was sinless, and death had no power over him, he rose from the dead because of his own holiness and by his own power. When Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, here's what he said. For God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. You say, well, if it was impossible and death had no authority over him, why did Jesus die? He died willingly. He died because a price had to be paid for our sins. He died because had he not died, we would all still be in our sins and under condemnation. And so he died. And three days he was in the tomb. But death had no authority over him. Not when he died and not when he was in the tomb for three days. It had no authority over him. So in order to fulfill the scriptures, on the third day, on Sunday morning, the Bible tells us that the women went to find an occupied tomb and they found an empty tomb. They went to find the body of a stricken Savior and they found a glorified Savior. They went to find a defeated man and they came to find one that was an absolute victory. They came to find evidences of the power of death and they found evidences of the power of the life that there is in the Lord Jesus Christ. I come to tell you this morning that our faith is a victorious faith. Somebody give the Lord a hand praise right now. And just, just thank Him. Just thank Him for the faith that we have as believers. Now this faith that we have has been under attack now for more than 2,000 years. In fact, immediately after the resurrection, the Bible says that the soldiers ran and told the, the, uh, the authorities what had happened. And they gave them money so that they would say that the disciples had stolen the body. There's a whole other sermon that I could preach on that and I don't have time now. But just simply to say that throughout the 2,000 and some years of the Christian faith from the very beginning... Our Christian faith, the resurrection has come under attack time and again. Some men, for example, Roman Emperor Diocletian, attempted to destroy the Christian faith. In A.D. 303, 
the Roman Emperor Diocletian issued an edict to stop Christians from worshiping Jesus and to destroy their scriptures. Every official in the empire was ordered to raise the churches and to the ground and to burn every Bible that they found in their districts. Every government official was put to action to bring an end to this Christian faith. 25 years after that edict, Diocletian died. And Constantine, who was his successor, ordered that 50 Bibles be published by the very Roman government that had persecuted the church for 25 and 300 in reality years. Voltaire the infidel in the year 1778 boasted that in 100 years Christianity will cease to exist. But within 50 years of that edict, of that declaration, the Geneva Bible Society used his house and his press to publish Bibles to spread throughout the kingdom. Robert Ingersoll, Robert Green Ingersoll, nicknamed the great agnostic, was an American lawyer and writer and public speaker who lived during uh, what was called the golden age of free thought. Once he boasted this, within 15 years, I'll have the Bible lodged in the morgue. But who ended up lodged in the morgue? But Ingersoll himself died not many years afterwards. And the Bible today, the scriptures today, the message of the gospel today continues as sure and as true as it has always been. Let me give you one more evidence here of skeptics, great men in, in, in the history of our nation that have, that have studied and attempted to destroy the Christian faith or to disprove the the, uh, the, the Christian faith and the doctrine of the resurrection but have failed miserably in doing it. And rather than, than disprove the resurrection, they have become believers in Jesus Christ. One of them was George Littleton that was a statesman and an author and a poet from 1709 to 1776. Then there was Simon Greenleaf that lived during that era this man was a royal professor of law at Harvard University. He was one of the most celebrated legal minds in American history. His dissertation on the law of evidence is still considered the greatest single authority on evidence in the entire literature of legal procedure. As a professor of law, he determined to expose the myth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ once and for all. But his thorough examination forced him to conclude instead that Jesus did rise from the dead. In 1846, he published an examination of the testimony of the four evangelists by the rules of evidence administered in courts of justice. This great mind that established the laws of how evidence should be presented and how it should be handled came to a completely different conclusion than what he started out to have. One of Greenleaf's points when he finally converted to Christianity is that nothing but the resurrection itself can explain the dramatic change in Christ's disciples and their willingness to suffer and die for their testimony. In other words, 
The greatest minds in American history have studied this matter, trying to disprove it, and have come because their hearts were opened by the scriptures and have come to the conclusion that this Jesus was not a Jesus that stayed in the tomb, but rather he was a Jesus that was raised from the tomb by the very power of God himself. Now, it was Gilbert West, another agnostic unbeliever that wrote the observations of history and evidences of the resurrection of Christ after his skeptical study of the resurrection led him to the conclusion that Jesus was the Christ. Here is what he wrote. If Christ had not written, and I quote, and proved himself by many infallible signs to have risen from the dead, the apostles and disciples would have no incentive to believe in him, that is to acknowledge him as the Messiah, the anointed of God. On the contrary, they must have taken him for a fraud and under that persuasion could never have become preachers of the gospel without becoming extremists or deceivers. In either case, considering their natural insufficiencies and the strong opposition of the world to the doctrines of Christianity, it is impossible that they should have succeeded to the degree which we know that they did. This great mind was saying essentially this, that these apostles and these disciples had no motivation. They had no incentive to preach what they preached about Jesus Christ. If they knew that it was not true, then they had to have come to the conclusion that Jesus was a deceiver and that Jesus was a fraud and that what he said was not true. But rather than believing that, at the end of his dissertation, he became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and declared in his book that is still written and available to us today that there is a Savior that rose from the dead on the third day. Somebody just praise the Lord right now for the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so here's what I'll say in my concluding comments. The resurrection of Christ is the fuel that ignites our preaching. The resurrection of Christ is the substance of our hope in eternal life after this life is over. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is our certainty that our faith is right and certain and that one day when Jesus comes for his church, we will be raised again from the dead to be with him forever in heaven. Now, when Paul writes this epistle, he is concerned of Corinthians. He is concerned because there were believers that were saying, yeah, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but we believe that once you're dead, you're dead, and that's it. And he came vehemently against that kind of a teaching. His conclusion is this. If Jesus rose from the dead, when we die, we will not remain in the tomb. As Jesus died and death had no authority over him so when we die death will have no authority over us the one that will have authority over us will be the one that has omnipotent authority and the word of power and in the day that God decides in the new future, near future 
There is a sound that is going to sound from heaven. And there is a shout that is going to thunder throughout the entire world. And those that believed in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be raised to be with him forever in glory. Brothers, we believe in a risen Christ, a glorious Christ. Someone just give him praise and say amen. Let's all stand. Truly, what has happened in the resurrection is that as Jesus moved from death to life, he took all of us with him. Every person that ever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusts him and surrenders his life to him becomes a participant of that great power that God makes available to all of us who believe. So the question becomes this at the end of our message. Have you believed with all of your heart in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because he that believeth, the Bible says, and is baptized, Mark 16, 16, shall be saved. And he that believeth not shall be damned. There's a lot of uh, criticism in the world today about the absolute statements of Jesus. And there are people that are very harsh when they, when they talk about how that Jesus is the only way to God and how that, that Jesus came to condemn the world and to speak a message of condemnation. That's not true. On one occasion, Jesus was talking to a very religious man, a good man, and he said this to him, John 3.18, he that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world. And that men love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil. For every man that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. I want to focus on verse 18 as I close. He that believeth not, he that believeth on him, rather, is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. You know what that means? It means this. It means that Jesus Christ, our Savior, came to the world not to condemn us, but because we were already condemned. See, his coming was not with the anger and the fury of a holy God that is wanting to cast from his presence those that are less than he is or that have broken the laws that his father gave Moses in the wilderness. No. He's the reconciler. He is the lover of our souls. If he comes to this world, and he did, 
It's because he saw our misery and our condemnation. He saw the brokenness that our sin had already brought upon us. And he was determined not to leave us in that state. And so the Bible says that for God so loved the world that he gave. Since that day that he gave us his son, he's been giving again and again and again and again, time and again and again. And for every one of us that are here, he's given. He's given us the message of the love of God. And what God is saying this morning is believe. Today what we're going to do is we're going to baptize our brothers. There are others that will be baptized. But today we baptize six in this service. And they believed. They believed in a Savior that died for their sins, washed them. And they believed in a Christ that defeated completely and totally death. So that he's the one now with the authority to raise from the dead those that sin hath killed. Let's pray. Father, today, this morning, as we prepare to celebrate the baptisms, I pray in Jesus' name that you would bless your people and that uh, you would give us faith to believe the gospel, that you would give us faith to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. On this resurrection day that we celebrate resurrection morning, we thank you for faith our faith we thank you that we don't have to close our eyes when we speak of the resurrection we can open them wide and examine the one sign that you left us that you are true and that the gospel is true and that we can have the forgiveness of our sins and that God can wash our souls of our iniquities and that we can be at peace with the Father. Thank you. Now with every eye closed and every head bowed, I just want to invite you, my friend, this morning to confess the Lord Jesus Christ. You tell him, Father, I turn from my sins and I turn to you. I believe. between you and the Lord he that believeth shall be saved believe on the Lord Jesus Christ you shall be saved in all of your household oh father in the name of Jesus